Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody, for being here. For those of you that are here live. And uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely, man. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. All right. So my guest today, the person I have here that I want you guys to meet is Ryan Manning. And Ryan Manning, you the um, well, there's a lot I, I kind of want to talk about right now. But right off the bat, you run Bad Rhino Studios, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah, I'm the studio head and, and an artist by trade. Okay, great. Um, so tell me about let's start with bad rhino tell me about what bad rhino does yeah so we're an indie studio we're based out of kind of the midwest and we work um right now with a bunch of different other studios uh we help them develop content uh we do porting stuff we've done uh vr um, uh, console development a uh, bunch of different stuff we we've done some internal projects as well so we do our own ips um we're about a size of i think about 15 right now uh, spread between artists and programmers, um, and uh, we're a distributed team, which is great. So we've got a few that are actually kind of local in the same region that I am, um, mm -hmm. and we've got guys from Brazil, England, um, Canada, all over. What made you um, start your own studio? Oh man, that's a that's that's a fun story. So um, I I went to the college, graduated back in like 2006. So it's been it's been a good few years. And through just random happenstance and just, you know, the the, the luck of life, um, you know, I didn't get to land at like Dream Studio gig, ended up moving back to Kansas City, which is, you know, kind of my hometown, hmm. um, worked a few odd end jobs and stuff. And again, for whatever reason, just, you know, things kind of kept me here. And about five years ago, um, I, I've always had this kind of niche, this inkling in the back of my mind of wanting to start my own studio and or, you know, get more opportunities that I just wasn't finding um, by just working, you know, freelance and audit jobs. And so about five years ago, um, after just kind of canvassing and looking, I said, OK, maybe now's the time that I make the jump. Uh, and that's when I started Bad Rhino and we've been kicking ever since. And so, you know, that's that's like the abridged version of it. Um, but, you know, really in short, it's just because, you know, this is something I love to do. And I just I wanted to take it a step further and actually start creating our own projects and, and doing some you know really cool things. Was it everything that you thought it would be when you started your own business? <laughs> oh, I'm going man. With this question, <laughs> oh, man. It, I mean, it is. And it's, it's weird because it's like. It, it was like I, I knew going into this that there was there was risk. There was a lot of unknowns. There was, you know, you can plan all day long and yet you still can't plan for everything. And so like in a way, it was like I knew I knew there were going to be some challenges with it. But, you know, the extent of all those challenges. Oh, no, man, those those have been those have been crazy. But I will say this, like it's it's been awesome because, you know, that's it's one thing. And I don't want to like knock at all, you know, if you're, if you know, working for a company or something like that, but you know, when you're driving your own ship and you're the captain of that, like, mm -hmm. it's crazy. Like decisions have, you know, much bigger impact and, you know, you're like, should I do this? You know, not to mention the fact I've got, you know, 15, 20 people that are count on, you know, counting on me to make the right decision. So, you know, in short, yeah, I mean, it's, it's everything that I had hoped for. And of course, way more than that too. Um, 
what do you what would you say is the biggest challenge uh, that you face? And and you know, let's say outside of cash flow, because ca- <laughs> if you're like me, right. cash flow is number one. Um, <laughs> you know, making sure that the same amount comes in every single month. But um, right. outside of that, what's the biggest challenge that you face running your own business? So probably the biggest challenge is just exposure. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't have a physical studio location, so it's not like you can, you know, drive past the highway and see, you know, bad rhino billboards or, right. you know, oh, yeah, I was walking past, you know, at lunch and I saw your your studio. So, you know, for us, the the biggest challenge, at least up until this point, has, you know, really been just driving that exposure. You know, hey, we're a studio here. We've got a lot of good talent. We'd like to work with you. We'd like to, you know, work with publishers, develop some stuff, you know. So that that's probably been by far the biggest challenge is just, you know, finding the work, going after the work and, you know, trying to keep things in the hopper at all times. So, you know, the guys, the artist programmers that work with us that, you know, that they have projects to work on. We have projects to work on. We're, we're building, you know, that's, that's been by far the biggest challenge. Yeah. Recognition. Yeah. Yeah. What's the strategy that you guys use to do that? Cause I think that's a problem everybody has. Yeah. Oh man, I wish I wish I had like the perfect answer to like this. Know, right? This Me is too. what we did. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's really been interesting because you know we we've tried leveraging like social media channels, which you know is has has been kind of lackluster. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've you know put our our website out there. We've we've made a presence, which is you know done some good things. But you know, I think probably ninety five percent of what I would attribute the success of us, you know, like actually getting projects and stuff has just been the networking, which is funny because I say that it sounds absolutely so cliche, but you know, what, what that translates out to is, you know, I've, I've talked with people, I've met people at whether it's conferences, digital conferences, you know, you name it. And just by striking up a conversation with them and not, you know, the, the business is like, you know, this is what we do elevator pitch, yada, yada, but just, you know, Hey, this is, this is who we are. And like, we're trying to do some stuff. Can we, can we help you? You know, that is that has definitely yielded the best results. And um, I would say more so, you know, again, we've been we've been established for five years, but I would say more so in the past kind of year and a half, two years is really where we established a lot of our um, what, what I would call the super solid connections. And those are the people that, you know, that that have been in the industry for years that, you know, appreciate what it is we're trying to do as a studio. They they value what we're doing. They value our ethics you know, all that stuff. And they have been, you know, absolutely the biggest help for us in, you know, just growing and getting more opportunities. Got it. So is that like going to events and, you know, like the summit, ZBrush Summit or going to CTN or Design yeah. or? Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, in particular now, like I, I love yeah. conferences, man. I love going to them. Like I'm, I'm a, just a, fanatic for like knowledge and and all that stuff but you know like (laughs) being as a studio head now and not you know i'm I'm still an artist but like you know wearing that studio that studio head hat like i'm i have to look more strategically at conferences right because it costs and you know i don't have a parent company that's you know gonna dump you know a couple grand in my lap say oh yeah go to this you know go to this conference so Take a you month know, off. You don't need right, to worry right. about revenue. God, that would be so nice, man. <laughs> um, but, you know, so like, so from that perspective, like I, I really strategically look at conferences, you know, like how is this going to help our studio? How is this going to help us in the long run? You know, so um, a lot of which has been surprising. And I, I say surprising because like, I think the landscape's changing, even though it's still kind of young, but like all these digital conferences or attending digitally, you're doing like, you know, a Skype, a Zoom, you know, Hangouts, whatever it is, kind of 
virtual face-to-face, like I've been doing a ton more of those, more so than I say I've ever done collectively at physical conferences. But mm-hmm. the the whole intent is the same thing that, you know, I'm trying to connect with people. I'm trying to connect with publishers, with IP holders, with, you know, people that are, are needing that assistance or collaboration. Um, mm. So that's that's been a that's been a big uh, a big driver for me on the conference side. Not so much attending them physically, but definitely doing them digitally. What does that mean? I'm a little confused. Yeah, so you know, like like in the past, like I mean, like like ten years ago, you know, mm-hmm. if you wanted to go to like you know game developers conference, right? Like right. you had to buy a pass, you had to fly out to LA, you had to you know attend, which is awesome. I love GDC. Right. Um, but they they started making these shifts. I think it's like Meet to Match. I think is the platform now that they use. But you can literally at GDC you can set up these um, these meetings with people, and there's an option to be able to do them virtually. So uh, for example, I'll um, uh, I'll give an example. Like I met with uh, an Xbox representative because we're an Xbox developer, and she literally was in the Redmond office. I was in my home studio. And we got a, a private virtual room. We met, we talked, we had it scheduled for 15 minutes. And we literally did everything that we would do in person, but we did it digitally. Um, and that process, um, kind of going back to your question, like that, that process is now becoming more prevalent in especially a lot of these larger industry conferences where they not only have the ability to meet in person, but they now have it digitally. And I, man, so many people I'm talking to, especially... Um, I don't want to say on that executive level, but, you know, the people that make decisions with the money, mm-hmm. with the IP and stuff, man, so many more of them are just getting on board with that because, you know, you can schedule back to back to back meetings. You can have 12 meetings in a day and you're not exhausted from walking around everywhere. So, oh, that's so that's something that, yeah. And that's something that, you know, I'm doing a lot because again, you know, needing those industry connections, needing to be able to go and, and talk to people and stuff, but not having to fork over, you know, you know, three to four grand on flight, hotels, trip and everything, you know, I'm spending 80 bucks for a ticket and I'm sitting at home, you know, in my sweatpants. Okay. And that's just something that the expo, that the thing organizes through itself, right? Yeah, I think so. Most, most of them, uh, I think now are kind of going with like third party stuff just because they have the the systems for it. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, especially on the indie scene. Um, there's a lot of little indie conferences that do that. I know some that are based in Canada, the U S uh, in fact, actually, I think next week I'm doing one, which is the the indie game uh, or, the, or the business of indie game development. Uh, and that that's like an $80 ticket. And um, it's got, I think, like a thousand attendees going to it. So. So, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it's um, yeah. Yeah. But the platform wise, it's, it's so easy to use. That's great. That is exciting to me because I can never get out of Laguna Beach. Like mm-hmm. I was going to go see Shane Olson um recently at uh, some conference and i'm like i'll be there i'll be there and then saturday rolls around and i'm like i'm not gonna be there i yeah just love where i am too much to go and i did <laughs> so many conferences when i worked at fix logic i was like i am done for life yeah yeah you get it's, it's definitely that's a that is a an industry trait of that that conference fatigue it's like oh it's mm-hmm. a vacation but it's definitely not a vacation and and yeah, and I, I think too, one of the other things that, that has been an interesting part of kind of our journey as a studio, you know, with being 100% distributed, but like still trying to implement things that still like feel like a physical world right. is the the accessibility with all this. Like, you know, like I, I've got a, a wife, a daughter and an, another kid on the way. And, you know, sometimes like I just, I can't, 
I can't escape, right? Like I can't mm-hmm. get out to a conference, but if I can say, you know, hey, babe, watch the kids for like an hour and a half, go somewhere. Like I've literally been able to achieve the same results as being there physically, but, you know, w- without having to do all of the travel and everything like that. So Cool. I love it. I, yeah. As soon as this is done, I'm going to unpack and that and see what I can do for the students. Cause that sounds like that's a lot of, that's quite an yeah. opener there. Well, and what's interesting too, I think on, on like the student level too, is I've really seen a lot more, you know, obviously my focus being kind of the business development side of things, right. but what I've seen a lot is there are a lot of companies that are offering, especially with these like digital conference style stuff where it's like, you know, Hey, we are looking for interns. We are looking for students. And, you know, there's, there's a good handful of them that have infrastructure in place to be able to do remote work because they know that that's becoming very prevalent. So, you know, I, I would say too, you know, look at some of these conferences and, and just look at some of these, you know, virtual meetings. Like I said, most of the tickets are less than like a hundred bucks to be able to go and gives you a chance to actually talk to, you know, recruiters. That's a great idea. Um, and along those lines, you're hiring, or I think, yeah, I looked at the site, you're, you're hiring, you hired one of our students. Um, yes, I did. What do you look for? Uh, and in fact, why don't we start with what do you, are you hiring for? You're hiring for an environment. Are you hiring for character? Mm-hmm. Not really. Um, I mean, for? yeah, so our, our biggest needs right now are um, we're definitely looking for a level designer, somebody that understands, you know, Unreal, Assembly, uh, but also some bit of scripting, you know, kind of bringing life to the world. Um, as an environment artist, in fact, actually, uh, Kyle, one of, one of your students, he's actually been kind of filling in for us and doing a lot of our environment stuff. Um, we're looking to help kind of offload some of that work. So, you know, modeling, materials uh, for environment stuff. Um, and then, of course, the I think the other two positions we're looking for more on the senior level, which is just a senior artist to kind of, you know, help come in, uh, take some of and, and total side note. This is this is the joys of being indie that, you know, technically, if I take off my my studio owner hat, I'm I'm a senior artist. Like that's yeah. that's what I am by trade. I've been doing that for like 16 years now. So, yeah. you know, trying to offload some of that onto you know, another senior artist uh, and then look as well for like a, a senior programmer to kind of help out in that vein as well. What are you looking for in programmers? This has been, um, we, we have a programming class that we mm-hmm. just started. So we uh, welcomed our inaugural um, cohort to that in uh, oh, that's cool. October. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and then one of them, was it John? I think John's in here. Yeah, I think it was John was mentioning uh, Unreal programmers making 150,000 in Silicon Valley starting, mm-hmm. you know, but then with the weird twist that they also should be artistic. Interesting. Um, so what are you looking for when you're looking for a programmer? Yeah, so I guess I guess I should preface too that, you know, we're we're an indie studio. And so I, I'm kind of approaching this from the indie side, which is, you know, limited budget, limited personnel. Sure. So like, you know, for us at the core, like everybody who's on the team, like I, I'm always looking for people that, you know, are, are specialized at least in one area, but have either dabbled or understand other areas because that's great for us because you know again we have interesting challenges we don't you know have a a dedicated you know staff of 25 programmers and 100 artists right like we've we've got a small handful and that's what we have to work with so you know on that end and i think that's kind of more of a, a a broad canvas of that is that you know we look for people that have again a core skill but then can spread out now how that translates for programmers you know the big the big thing for me is that you know i I, I totally believe and understand, you know, the fact that technology is always changing, right? Like mm-hmm. if you if you graduated tomorrow and you didn't learn another thing, you would 
you would be completely irrelevant in like two years because you know you you'd be losing those skills. So the first thing that we look for is just kind of that drive to to understand and learn the tools on an ongoing basis. Now, granted, that's not like super concentrated. Like you got to be going to you know eight hour courses every week to do that, but. It's one thing that we recognize, especially with programming, is that, you know, hey, new features are coming into the engine. There's there's these new things like uh, with like 423, this last iteration, there's a ton more cinematic tools. Now, you know, granted, we may not use all of those, but it's cool to see somebody who says, you know, hey, I actually started looking into this. So as an indie, if you're telling me like, you know, hey, my my primary you know skill set is I'm a really strong blueprint programmer and you know i also can do some c plus plus it's like cool i know your core vein and then you say oh yeah by the way i've been looking at some of the cinematic tools and here's a little demo even if it's rough like for me i i'm seeing that ambition i'm seeing that drive that Mm -hmm. you know and i always hate to it always sounds like you're diminishing it to you know something institutional but like you're providing value to our team and that's huge because again if i'm going to hire you as a programmer just as a blueprint artist and that's all you do I don't know if I would, you know, but if you've got yeah. a little bit more of that broad skill set, it's like, hey, man, that's awesome. Um, and I think the other thing, too, that, you know, to to make sure that I, I preface is, you know, absolutely. I mean, I again, an artist of like 16 years myself doing this, like I still don't feel like I've ever mastered anything. Like I feel like I'm always learning and I superimpose that upon you know everybody that works for our studio. I don't expect you to be the quintessential expert in everything, but you know, I do look for that drive to, Hey, I want to keep learning. I want to, you know, this new feature came out. I'm just going to kind of look into it and see how it can help us. Um, you know, so again, that's a little bit more subjective, but that's, that's definitely a, a strong trait that I look for. Um, mm. and then the third thing, and I'll, I'll stop rambling on this one, <laughs> but the, the third thing is definitely, you know, an understanding that, you know, at the end of the day, that as a studio, right, like we have to produce things, we have to ship things. And so, you know, it's never going to be quite perfect. It never is. Um, but having that understanding that, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to make sure that we get things done. So, you know, if you're especially like a programmer and you're able to get that feature built or you're able to patch that or get those bug fixed, like that is quintessential to, you know, our success as as a studio is is getting things done and pushed on time. Perfect. That's great. Um, you said something there that I think there's um, it's kind of at the heart of what we do at the boot camp. I think it's also at the heart of the um, of what uh, game artists are facing because game artists are production artists, which implies mm-hmm. production, getting something yeah. done. Um, before we get into that, though, you mentioned uh, if somebody learns something, then stops, they're going to be outdated in a couple of years. And we talk a lot in the boot camp about the half-life of a skill. Mm-hmm. And uh, how in my dad's time, you know, you could learn plumbing and that would give you, you know, you could make money off that. You could make, you could live for a long time, right? 20 years right, is, right. is yeah. what it is. So the half-life in his time was 10 years. The half-life now is five years. So that means that a skill is usable for 10 years. That's not the game industry, though. The half-life of the game industry seems to be like, you know, two years at most, maybe three. Yeah. Um, So why don't we just kind of put some context in there? What changes have you seen um, that have kind of made an impact in the time that you've been in since, you know, you graduated 2006? It's a little Mm -hmm. bit before me, I think. I think I got into it about 2008 Okay, um, is when I got in, maybe maybe 2006. Um, What kind of changes have you seen? Yeah. So like if I go if I go back to like it is around I think like 2005, 2006, when, 
and I'll use this as kind of an example, like that was kind of the, in, in my opinion, the, the coming of age for ZBrush. I think it was like ZBrush version 1.2 or something. And I remember in, in college that like, I looked at it, somebody was like, dude, this is like the best software in the world. I'm like, you know, what is it? Like I was still doing high poly modeling with like sub D's and nerves. Like that was our high poly modeling. And then, you know, ZBrush came along and at the time, I, I don't think I quite realized it, but like that was a huge shift in the way the industry was going to start producing, you know, awesome, beautiful results. And, you know, like, I, I think now if we kind of fast forward using that as like the, the example that mm -hmm. a lot of what we're seeing, especially when it comes to like, you know, real time engines, or, you know, even like the tool set in Houdini, like, there's a lot of these processes that, you know, typically would have taken hours to complete that also now are like being just like, automated and generated overnight. Now, granted, I definitely will say that it's not like a one stop shop, like, you know, oh, cool, I learned Houdini, and now I just make awesome art or, you know, whatever it is. But I think from that perspective, the the way the the industry is kind of going, right? Like I'll, I'll use another example and I, and I apologize if these are all art examples, but you know, like, you know, you take a look at Unreal Engine and using it for like portfolio renders, right? Like, you know, traditionally you would model the scene, you'd build it in, you know, Maya, you would, you know, start rendering it in Mental Ray or V-Ray. And, you know, those render times would take, you know, like hours to days sometimes. And now, you can just dump it in a real-time engine and see it running at 30 frames a second. And so like that, that paradigm shift right now in the industry is that, you know, the, the process between the idea that you have and getting something, even if it's like a rough prototype or something is like, it's becoming exponentially so much faster. And in fact, actually I'll, I'll use an example that I had on this one. So, um, I think I'm still sharing my screen like this, this love death robot scene that we did. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we did a, we did a series, I think of three of them. Uh, this was an internal challenge I threw out to, to, to my art team. Uh, and I think one of, actually, no, it was just our animator that, that helped out with this. Uh, but the idea basically was, as I said, Hey, I want to see how fast we can rapid prototype a scene. And here's the caveat. We can't create any content for it. Like we literally just have to go to a marketplace asset. We have to download assets that are existing. We have to light the scene and use it in a real time engine. And we have to achieve at least 24 frames a second, which at the end of the day, we ended up getting like a 90 to 120 frames a second. So, you know, but the process with that is we were able to recreate three of these scenes from that Netflix series in literally a matter of days. And so I think, you know, that kind of encompasses at least what I've seen in the industry shifting is that, you know, this this time between, hey, I've got an idea and I'm going to kind of prototype it being weeks is now down to hours to like days. And, you know, I think that's that's huge and that's a, that's a massive shift right now. So hopefully that's not too high level. <laughs> if I, I, I mean, is, is, I think that makes sense, right? Yeah. I And um, okay. and I think it speaks to a lot of what I've heard, like, um there's a, one of the things I remember hearing a little while ago uh, was how um, Unreal itself has become a really big part of, um, I don't know how to say this, it's, it's just become more important, you know, the message well, of it itself. Yeah, well, and, and I, think, I think what encapsulates that the most is the fact that even Epic now is trying to get away from people calling it a game engine. 
like they're calling it a real-time engine because you know mm. it's used in cinematics it's used yeah. in architectural visualization it's used for games it's used mm-hmm. it's like it's it's so much more than that and and yeah and i and i think that is is so key especially for like students to understand and, and i encourage this too on all fronts is you know if you had to pick an engine i would go with it and it's and i, I realize i'm a little partial to it because it's what we use but the reason why i say that is because you know I remember college too, like, right? Like you're going through, like, I didn't even know what I want to do even after I graduated. And, you know, so there's, there's like, you know, you're, you're still kind of figuring things out, but the cool part is with this tool set, it's like, I mean, it's like this huge freaking toolbox of all different kinds of tools, you know, let's say, oh, I thought I wanted to go into game development, but man, it's too volatile or it's too crazy, too stressful. But oh, I realized I love doing film and cinematography and I can do these, you know, basically like what the weather stations do, augmented, you know, kind of production stuff. Oh, and surprise, you're using the exact same tool set. And it's like, that's, that to me is mind blowing um, because you, you're able to focus on a skill set and not be, you know, completely in left field if you decided to make a shift. Mm, that's a really great point. Um, all right. So we talked a little bit about um, some of the changes. Uh, we right now in, in the bootcamp, we have two main kind of careers that we serve character artists and environment artists. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to unpack a little bit about what you think environment artists need to be successful getting pretty much that first job. Um, mm. and where I'm going with this is, uh, environment art. I mean, definitely I want to know what the criteria is, but it's one of the most dynamic areas of games outside of unreal and and what real time means um because there's level design there's prop there's surface there's Mm -hmm. you know there's organic there's hard surface there's you know there's so many parts that are environment so what does environment artist mean to you right yeah i i hate that it kind of environment artist falls in the same as like like level designer, right? It's, it's right. so ambiguous and so broad. Um, it's not you know, like for me, artist, you know, right, right. Artist makes a <laughs> character. You're done. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. You know, so like, like for us, you know, on the environment side, um, a lot of what we look for, I think really falls into two categories. Um, and they're definitely, definitely on the artistic side, not on like the, the assembly or level design. Although I will say that kind of having that knowledge of, you know, how your assets, um, in context, like how they're used is great. But, uh, you know, for us, it's not like you have to be a level designer slash environment artist. So for an environment artist, especially for us, like, you know, what what I look for is the ability to build. Um, I think modularity is a big, important part, right? Like, you know, if, if we hired you as an environment artist, we don't want you, you know, like, oh, hey, I created this, you know, architectural pack and it has 300 meshes in it. And you're like, oh my God, like, how do we, okay, um, we just need to literally just make like a little house. Yeah, you know, so like if, if you can whittle that kind of stuff down to, you know, hey, I made 12 assets and I've got all these different variations. That is to me, you know, a really high degree of skill is that you mm-hmm. understand how to get the most mileage out of the fewest number of pieces possible. So that's one side of it. Uh, the second thing is, and, and we use this a lot, especially, uh, in fact, actually right now, um, one of one of the, the projects we're working on is for the Nintendo Switch. So if you have any knowledge of the Switch, it is, it's literally just a cell phone, but just slightly better. So it's like a horrible platform in terms of like, from an artistic standpoint, like we have such a limited budget. And so with that, from what our environment artists do is, you know, focus on creating these tileables. So these materials that can help to span, you know, really large, 
you know, areas, whether they're buildings, whether it's terrain and stuff like that. So the ability for our environment artists to author, you know, beautiful materials that can scale is huge. So I think collectively, those all kind of go back to this whole idea that, you know, especially for us and what we look for environment artists is, can you get a lot of mileage out of the, the fewest pieces possible, whether it's materials or assets? Um, and, you know, I think the rest from that is, I, I don't want to say any less important, but definitely secondary to that is, you know, can you optimize your assets? But, you know, I think that's just something now that I think everybody understands at least is, you know, hey, I got to make at least stuff that runs an engine. Right. And the automation tools on that are like Houdini is now being used for a lot of that automation. Oh, I, I, I'm honestly like that is I, I have been dying to just learn Houdini. I just haven't had time. That's such a horrible excuse. <laughs> don't I, don't I, take I, that away. Like, but like, <laughs> it, I mean, every time I see somebody use something for Houdini, um, like it's incredible. I'm, I'm trying to remember her name. I think it's Anna something, but she she released it on um, uh, level eighty. She did it, and there was also um, the lake she, house. She posted them. Yeah, the lake house one. Anastasia. And, yeah, Anastasia. That was it. Yeah, and like she showed it, and like my jaw, my Ooh, jaw my just hit the floor because I'm like, how did you, you got like fifty buildings out of just like a procedural generator? And I'm like, okay, this is that's crazy. But yeah, I mean that that right there, if you know, you came and presented a portfolio. They said, Hey, I did this as an environment artist. Uh, I'd be like, okay, cool. You're hired. You're good. You're good. Like you, you got it. You know, you know what you're doing. We'll, we'll find something for you. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, in your, on your art station, um, you've got a couple of prop style or a couple of uh, posts. That's the word I'm looking for. Stylized mm -hmm. crates, dead props, sticks and bones. Are these examples of things that you like to see people do? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, so these, these were actually created, um, for, cause we, we sell stuff on the Unreal marketplace. Part of that's awesome. just exposure for us as a studio. Mm -hmm. Part of that's, you know, um, and I'm big about kind of giving back to the community. You know, we've, we've got very talented artists and programmers on our team. Uh, they do a really, really good job. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, we've built these packs, we've published them. So, you know, you can use them for commercial use. Um, I also, and this is one thing, just a little bit of insight to how we do things. Um, in fact, actually, uh, Jamie, she's one of the artists that's been around since literally the beginning of uh, the studio. She's done a lot with these packs, a lot of creation. Um, and part of what I do with that is, you know, because we make, you know, it's, it's not a ton, but we make some money from the marketplace every month. And, you know, for the work that she's done, she gets a lion's share of that. So it's kind of a nice way of just having some, some supplemental income, something to help us out um, with that. But in general, kind of going back to your question about, um, you know, are these things that I can see? Absolutely. Um, you know, in fact, one of the things that I think is is helpful, and, and I'll actually use this one because I think most people have seen this, our, our stylized environment. Uh, mm -hmm. Let me show down real quick. Okay. So this scene, now now I did all the, the level assembly, the, you know, filling this level out. Uh, mm -hmm. That was what I did. But, uh, you know, Jamie, our artist, she was the one that created all this. And, you know, I think the, the parallel, especially what I, I love to see in portfolios is, you know, this, this collection of stuff, I think is maybe like 24, 25 different assets. Um, it's not a super huge pack, but in context, it looks great. Like you've gotten a lot of mileage out of it. So, you know, if you came to me presenting a portfolio and this was the first shot you gave me like, hey, that looks really cool. And then you gave me a breakdown of, hey, these are the assets that I use. You know, that to me is an indication that you you understand the process. You understand the, you know, 
um, not creating a thousand different assets. Like you've created a relatively small few and you were able to create a beautiful scene with it. So, you know, I, I think, um, you know, going back to that, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see that kind of stuff in portfolio. Um, now, how so. does that jive? Cause this is, this is the conversation I have with students a lot. And of course the students come in and they're, they're, they want to build everything. They want to make everything, mm-hmm. you know, and for good reason, because they want to, that they know that they're trying, their job is to prove that they can achieve results. So the dilemma I have is how does this jive with buying assets and assembling the scene? Because that's actually mm. also a job, the level design, yeah. right? Or yeah. a lighter, like, you know, a lighter is not necessarily, you know, like let's say our teacher, Maria Yao, uh, who teaches at, uh, or who works at, um, I can't remember where she moved to now. I think it's um, Sucker Punch. And she doesn't model, right? That her job yeah. is to like, because that's a hard enough job to optimize for. Yeah. So I'll give you I'll give you a bad example of this one, which is myself. Okay. I'm picking on myself. So back back in college, when I had to create my demo reel, I was burnt out from the process. We were trying to just get so much crammed in. And one of the things that I did is I ended up like, I don't even know why. I was such an idiot. I don't but like what I what I did was uh, I was putting my demo reel together and I ended up spending like a day and a half, like just mixing my own little custom audio track. Like it was the stupidest thing. I understood why I did it. But like I looked at it and I go, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, you know, that was absolutely pointless because I wasn't applying as an audio person. I was applying as a 3D artist. And so, you know, what you kind of brought up with the whole, you know, is it OK to use assets that you purchased? Yeah, absolutely. But it has to fall within context of what it is that you're trying to apply for. So, for example, you know, if you're a 3D modeler and, you know, 75 percent of your scene is purchase assets. No, that's a bad idea. But if you're a lighting artist and literally 100 percent of your scene is, you know, pre-purchased stuff. okay, cool. No problem. Like in production, that's what's going to happen. Like, right. Like you're going to be working with lighting. You're going to be working with assets. So absolutely go for it. Um, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you really got to know what it is you're applying for and showcase those skills because otherwise, and, and <laughs> otherwise you get called on your bullshit, right? Like if you're an artist, you're applying and, you know, you send me this awesome portfolio, I'm like, man, your stuff looks really good. Like you've got these environments that are awesome. And then it comes time for you to take a test and your test is like significantly worse because, oh, hey, you didn't tell me that, you know, you're using a bunch of flipped assets. That's going to show and that's just going to be detrimental to you. Like that's you're you're only hurting yourself in that. OK, got it. I understand. So within so each project that you do, you just need to have integrity within that project. Right. Exactly. You know, and and absolutely, too. I mean, you know, like uh, if kind of going back to this one, too, you know, say, for example, you know, these are the assets you created and you showcase that you're honest, you're transparent about that. But, you know, you show me a render like this and, oh, you had purchased, you know, a terrain or, you know, you created, you, you bought a material for that. Not a problem, right? Like you've been honest, you've been upfront with it and we totally get it, you know, for me, cause you know, I'm, I'm actually the one that, that vets, um, a lot of, in fact, almost all of our applications, right? Like I'll eventually find out, some some degree of how much you know or how much you don't know and if you're just honest and upfront with me about it like oh cool okay cool totally understand yeah it's totally fine you know because that's that stuff happens in production right like you know you'll have an artist that might create some things but then you have another artist that contributes and another designer that comes in right like you've got a lot of hands in the pot and so it's not necessarily 100 percent your work and that's and that's just normal and that's totally understandable okay 
I got it. And I should correct uh, Maria. You works at Splash Damage. So Maria, if okay. you're listening, sorry. Uh, all right. <laughs> so um, I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. And then the next question that I have, the thing that's kind of been bugging me in environment arts, because again, I think environment arts is hands down the most dynamic right now. Mm-hmm. Um, characters not, I mean, ZBrush did its work. Um, and so now a lot of it is uh, environments is what's changing. So if we look at like, say these, um, the sticks and bones, mm-hmm. this is a modular kit, geometry, kit bashing. Yep. This is now also getting done in substance, right? Right. To some extent. Um, so in your case, and I know you're in indie, um, uh, side of things and, and whatnot, but, uh, are you also looking for, you know, people who are pushing the envelope in substance designer and things like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, designer falls, you know, relatively in the same kind of category as like Houdini or something like that, where, you know, you're able to author these, these beautiful things, um, with relative speed, right? Like, uh, you know, um, first and foremost is obviously quality, but, you know, the, the ability to go in and, you know, craft these materials, these surfaces, these, you know, assets and, and to do it in such a fashion where, a, you don't lose the artistic quality and control over it, but mm-hmm. you've also created something um, that, you know, can can scale massively. Like, that's huge. That's extremely valuable, um, you know, and yeah, definitely something that we look for. Okay. All right. So Substance and all those are still powerful tools for you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, in fact, actually there, I, I would even go as far as to say that, the the advent of substance is what ultimately had killed Photoshop. Now that's horrible because I know some people are like, what? No, don't say that. Like, but what I what I mean by that is, you know, the ability to be able to do things in 3D to view it in real time is it it's it's leaps and bounds, way more valuable and way quicker than doing it on you know Photoshop, export, view, and stuff like that. So right. you know, absolutely substance. Um, some designer, substance painter, Houdini, ZBrush, all of them. I mean, in fact, we use those in our production pipeline on a daily basis. What do you look for in a level designer? First and foremost, story, right? Like <laughs> it's it's one thing to throw things in a scene, right? It's another thing to actually craft a story with it. Um, right. You know, I think one thing that I, I definitely look for um, is you don't have to be working necessarily with the most beautiful assets. In fact, you could work with like, if, if you're familiar, like with the term, like, you know, gray boxing, right? Like just using literally primitive shapes with, you know, a very, very basic material. Like you can still craft a story with that. Like you can still craft something, you know, that I look at and I go, wow, like I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm drawn into this. Um, That's first and foremost, the thing that I look for in level designers is that, that thought and that process behind, you know, I really thought about why am I here? What am I doing? What's my purpose? Where do I want them to go? What do I want them to see? What are the surprises? And, mm-hmm. you know, crafting that into what you produce, it can be small, like a little diorama, or it can be big, like a, you know, a level. That's definitely first and foremost. Um, and I, I think second to that is, you know, lighting kind of falls into that just because, again, it's helping to craft your story, right? Light can right. be used as another storyteller. So. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Got it. Um, in terms of the tech in games, like I had, mm-hmm. I, what was it? Um, 
in the first part of my career, I focused on digital sculpting. That was where the innovation was. And I was quite mm-hmm. happy with that and, um, and worked my butt off there. Um, but then about three years ago, uh, I just started to see that that's, you know, it's losing its, it's not necessarily the same needle mover that it used to be for somebody's career. So I shifted over into right. games and, um, and I've been focusing my attention in that area. Um, and we've alluded to this a little bit, but what do you see or, or what are you excited about in terms of game tech and, and where this is all going? Do you see anything coming down the pike that's going to be a, um, a powerful future for us artists to be thinking through? Yeah, I, I think by far the, the biggest game changer um, is, is rapid iteration. Right. Mm-hmm. Like being able to rapidly prototype, being able to rapidly throw things together. I mean, like I think about this, you know, back in I think it was like Unreal Engine two days or, or when they came out, like there was this this huge push. And it was like, man, the engine can crunch two million polygons. And you're like, whoa, that is crazy. Like now that's just you kind of blink at like, oh, yeah, I can actually do 50 million polys. Um, right. Like so, you know, that shifting, you know, if you if you thought about it, like from that perspective as an artist, like, hey, I've got 50 million polys I can throw in the scene. Like that's even hard to do with like some ZBrush stuff. Right. Like you'd have to like subdivide <laughs> that thing like crazy. So, you know, I, I think that that that's a huge change, especially for art. Right. Because like at the end of the day, we as artists, whether it's surfacing, texturing, modeling, characters, you name it, like we're telling a story. We're 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 pushing something behind that art that evokes emotion. It evokes thought. And I think the ability now to get it into something that's running in real time or, you know, even being able to throw it to an environment where I can go view it in VR, like I'm fully immersed in this, like that's huge. And and to do that quickly, like I think that's going to be the huge shift. But I think the cool thing, and this is what I I love most about us as artists over the millennial, is that we're going to have this big body of people that can do that quickly, right? Like, you know, like, oh, hey, I threw this VR scene together in like two days. You're like, that's really cool. But then there's like this gap and this is like the elite few or, you know, elite semi mini that like it's that ability to take it and and craft it and make it beautiful, not just something thrown together that I don't think will ever really be touched. Right. Like we'll get new tools, we'll get new, you know, engines, new environments to throw that in, you know, but being able to tell a beautiful story with that or craft it like that's still going to be the artistry behind that. I don't think any software piece can ever replace. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's just a matter of getting there quickly to that stage and then you can, you know, polish and refine and, and make it beautiful. I get that. Um, or is there any, um, any area that you think environment artists, well, let's start with this question. Is there any area where you think that uh, environment level and, and game artists are getting it wrong right now and focusing on things that just are absolutely unimportant for being hired mm. or for working? That's a good question, man. Because I, I think in general, I mean, environment artists, especially that position has been around for so long that I think in general, there's 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 a good idea about what is like healthy expectations from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, though, I don't necessarily know if it's getting things wrong as as much as I would like to see. I, I think I, I would appreciate more environment artists understanding the context 
behind what they're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, right, like if you're you're literally creating this toolkit, this, you know, assets, a bundle of assets, materials and stuff for, say, for example, a level designer. And that level designer just does assembly, right? They're not creating any of those assets. They're just taking what you have and working with it that I, I, I would love to see more environment artists coming out, understanding that that kind of marriage between the two different worlds and, you know, thinking ahead in terms of, you know, hey, you know, I created this asset pack and I did a little bit of testing with it and I made sure that it will work the best it can for you as a level designer. And you're not going to have to sift through like I'll, I'll use an example, you know, say you're creating a vegetation pack, right? Like it would be it would look cool in your portfolio if you had like, you know, 50 different grasses that you could pick from. But mm-hmm. as a level designer, I'm going to be like, I hate you. Like, why did I have this many? Like, I don't know what ones I'm supposed to like. Like, okay, you know. And so, you know, by understanding that relationship, you know, sure, you can do that, do your portfolio stuff. But what you're eventually turning on is like, hey, man, I created these like five absolutely beautiful grasses for you. And they'll be like, man, I love you for these. These are awesome. Thank you so much. You've made my life just so much easier. So, you know, I think, I think from that perspective, it's just understanding where your stuff goes once you're done with it in production mm-hmm. and, and being nice to the other people down the line. <laughs> yes. I love that. That's great. Um, I want to shift here for a second. Do you think uh, geography is important? You're still in Kansas city. Mm-hmm. You think it's so, important to locate into the, uh, into the centers or no? Oh, man. So that's, there's two sides of this. I mm-hmm. think from the employment standpoint, no, I, in fact, actually I think geography is, I think it's probably going to be dead in five years. And what I mean by that is, you know, so many companies, even outside of game development um, and, and even in game development itself, have understood that, you know, so many more people want this, you know, the the cliche work-life balance. And what they've realized is that a lot of them have their own stipulations, right? Like there's there's people who love Midwest living. They love land. They love, you know, big skies. They love that stuff. There's some people that love cities. And by, you know, kind of divorcing themselves from this, hey, we've only got to hire locally, they've all of a sudden just extended their their range of people they can hire, you know, across the globe, which is what we do. And I, and I realize that because we don't have a, a huge talent pool here locally. So I had to go, you know, um, across the region. However, on the flip side of that, too, you know, I think, you know, geography still is important. Um, you know, there, there are other things. In fact, um, there there's development equipment that we have. Um, and mm-hmm. if we work with some, you know, very, very large studios, there, there are some requirements legally that we have to be within the same environment, right? Like if you're working on us on an Ubisoft title, like you've got to have security measures in place. Now, granted, you can still do that remote, but it's much easier physically. Um, and then of course the third thing, which is, you know, kind of me subjectively, you know, I love that we're a distributed studio, but there are days that I miss that just collaboration of being in the same room even if you're not necessarily talking that like that's huge and especially for creatives like i i love that and i kind of do miss that um you know but i i think in general the industry is is making a huge shift um away from everybody having to be in the same you know physical location at the same Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. yeah i agree with you and um and I, I see it in my own, in my students. There's so much talent distributed across mm-hmm. both geography and in you know um, walks of life. You know different yeah. different things. So um, yeah. Kyle is an example. You know he did something totally different, and um, 
he couldn't necessarily just relocate to some game center. I mean, it requires you change your, your life, you know, maybe you've got kids, they're in school. Yeah. Um, Which is, I I mean, which is huge. I mean, some, some people don't, you know, understand the implications. Like, you know, it's like, Oh, we'll move here. It's a beautiful city. Well, that's cool. But maybe your kids, your wife, your husband, whatever, you know, they don't adapt well, you know, then what, like that's, that's on you to do that. And you know, it's, you can, yeah. Part of me really wants to go to LA. So I kind of feel my students dilemma there. I'm like, I should Mm -hmm. really just go to Santa Monica and um, put a big studio there and have like a place where students can come in and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, Oh, you know, when I was a kid, my, by the time I was 21 years old, I'd moved 25 times, like four different States. Like what, you know, and every ounce of my being is like, there's no way I'm going to, subject my kid to anything close to that right you know um along those lines is there someone that really supported your artistic career in in your family oh man (laughs) i'd laugh i wish i could say she's actually my my great aunt was probably one of the best my parents were (laughs) this is horrible if they ever if they ever catch this podcast like they were they were (laughs) I mean, it was on one hand, it's like, you know, they, they do what parents do and they're like, you know, yeah. well, what about your job? What about your job? You know, so like the the creative aspects of like, you know, oh, made this beautiful. Yeah. But did it, you know, pay for the bills? Well, no, not really. Like, OK, well, you need to do that. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I think that it's because she had those like three degrees of separation. You know, my, my great aunt was definitely a bigger supporter in that. And she she encouraged the passion probably more than anything. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's that healthy balance that, you know, having your parents like, you know, you still need to get a job that, that pays the bills. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Have they have they come around now? I don't know. To be honest with you, like I, I don't really <laughs> talk to my parents much anymore. That's like a total Got separate it. thing. But yeah. I, I think, though, hindsight now, they realize that, you know, kind of where the journey has brought me to this point. They're like, oh, OK, OK, we'll we'll get on board with this. Like. Yeah, you're you're you've got a job. You're you're supporting your family, and okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> that pessimist, they can't they can't be like, right, right. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's a thread that runs through a lot of game artists, a lot of artists' lives, probably. Um, mm-hmm. Just, but in games, it's amazing. You're making a living, and in many cases, a good living. You know, yeah. doing this thing that when you were 18, your parents were like, "What the hell is wrong with you?" Right, yeah. I'm gonna go make games for a living. Like you're well, you're stupid. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was talking yeah, to no. Joe and, and Joe Garth was talking about that and how he, he had to fight and fight and fight, mm-hmm. you know, and look at where he's at in his career now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I, I think though too, going going back to what we, we kinda of talked about earlier too, this this paradigm shift with especially just game engines, aka real time engines. Like mm-hmm. like I think your viability as a an artist just got better because of that you know granted like you have to learn a little bit of the tools i think but not so much where you got to become like an expert programmer per se but i i think you became more valuable right because the the thing we always face as artists is you know not to say we're disposable but like you know programmers are way more valuable than we are just because you know art comes in and it leaves and you know but now I think the opportunities, especially uh, I would put money down on this. The opportunities in the next five to 10 years are going to be like a tenfold of what they are now. Just begin because of this, this 
new advent of the technology, um, especially for artists. Like there's going to be so many more things that we can do, so many more places where we can, you know, take a job, maybe do a career shift for a couple of years, come back um, and and not be completely irrelevant after it. Mm. That's great. I, you know, I've seen, I'm, I'm hoping for that too. That's why I focused on games is because I, I wanted something that gave my artists a, um, a future beyond just this mm-hmm. half-life like um, cycle we've been in. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen this like Sari, Sari is in here. Sari, I think your job, do I still have Sari in here? Um, is it Sari or whose job yeah. is at house now? So um, one of my students is working at House in the um, 3D department, creating a- AR experiences. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, Saria, it is, I forget who got that. Um, and then another student got a job at eSprint digitally designing clothing. Yeah. And that's an industry where they do everything the old school way. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at that industry and I'm like that, you know, basically they laid, they just recently laid him off um, because they were like, look, we have a choice between digital seam, seamstressy stuff or the old school way. And that means we're either laying off thousands of seamstresses or yeah. we're going to your digital. And they chose to keep the old method. But I'm looking at that and I'm like, you know, it's going to go away. 10 years, Mm. if you're still sewing and that's the primary method of all your design work and you're not using these digital tools, well, somebody's going to choose that efficiency and do better. Right. Yeah. Robots are going to take over the world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or it'll be chosen for you by the robots. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, so I'm looking at that and I'm like, man, there are so many opportunities that are out here, you know, for artists. Um, you mentioned real-time visualization. Is there anywhere else that you think is an opportunity for some for an artist um in the future coming down yeah that's ab- really important absolutely um i i think looking to the films industry that that is going to be a huge paradigm shift um it's it's already started in that but you know um man there, there's countless examples i know you can find on youtube and stuff but like um where they're doing it for like previs or location scouting or you know even doing backplate uh videography and and, you know what i mean by that is like you know being able to use a cinema camera but projecting a 3d background whether it's on a screen whether it's digitally like that is huge and you know that touches every aspect of artistry from level design to environment design to lighting to Mm. you know all that stuff and i i can tell you i a hundred percent that, you know, if you decided today for the next two years, you were going to do game development and you did it within that vein and mm-hmm. you decided to switch to go to like the films industry, you would be 100% applicable in that and vice versa. If you went today and worked for two years in the films industry, doing this stuff with real time engines and all that, and you decided to make a jump to game development, you're completely 100% applicable. Um, that's, that has been one of the most clear definitive things that I've seen, especially shifting right now. That's exciting. And yeah. uh, that's really, uh, it, and it was Shen Jarvis that uh, got the job. Sorry about oh. that. Um, all right. One last question for you. You guys yeah. got any questions? Make sure you ask them. I know I've been talking um, quite a bit, but we're right there at the, uh, at the time limit. Um, any questions, shout them out. Um, otherwise, the last question that I really like to ask is, do you believe in talent, work, or luck? <laughs> Man, 
I'd have to say both. And that's just, that's just from, from fact. But the, the one thing that I, I will always attest to is luck has a direct proportional relationship to hard work. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's possible to just get lucky out of the blue, but it's one thing to just constantly be laying the groundwork and then get lucky. Um, it, it's kind of like, to, as an example of it, it's like, you know, if, you had a bag full of, let's say, seeds like corn or something, and you you threw two seeds out and one of them grew. That's a lot of luck. And I don't really agree too much with that idea about kind of navigating life and navigating skills as much as I believe, you know, take that entire bag and plant them. And when that one sprouts up, was it luck or was it hard work? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that the, the more you're putting yourself out there, the more you're doing things to advance yourself, to advance your career, to advance your opportunities, that's when luck starts to appear more often. Uh, but again, I think that has a direct proportional relationship to, you know, you're doing something every day. You're doing something to push forward. Awesome. Ryan, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely, man. This was fun. I loved it. Yeah. Great talking to you. Thanks for the insight. Thanks for the tips. And um, you guys know where to find them, Ryan Manning and Bad Rhino Games. Have a good one. Cool. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com. To learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.